turn to Isaiah 34. We're headed to Isaiah 35. Have no fear. But it's a short chapter, Isaiah 35 is. And so it allows some time to circle back. Because the feedback that I got last week is I left some folks confused, which was certainly not my goal. So we'll take a little bit of time here to clean up. I think I know what I did. I think what I did was to take something that's actually relatively simple and make it complicated. So I'm going to try again and see if I can make something simple sound like what it is. Isaiah 34 is about the day of vengeance, just by way of review. We know that because context. That's what Isaiah has been leading up to. We know that because content. Phrases like the indignation of the Lord in verse 2, and the appearance of a sword in the Lord's hands in verse 6. And we know that it's about the day of vengeance because Isaiah says so in verse 8. Isaiah 34, verse 8. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. What is the day of the Lord's vengeance? Again, by way of review, or some of you might not have been with us last week, Jesus himself explains it to us. And we probably could get there even if he didn't, but he does. In giving us his mission statement, in beginning his public ministry in the synagogue after he returned from 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, after he was baptized by John and baptized by the Holy Spirit, Jesus reads Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Why, Jesus? Because the Lord has anointed me. For what, Jesus? To preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closes the scroll. Do you close the scroll? Do you roll it up? He closes the book, is what Luke says, and says this, today this verse is is, uh, fulfilled in your hearing. But looking at Isaiah 61, he stopped at a comma. He didn't go on to read the rest of the sentence to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. The acceptable year of the Lord, and we talked about this last week, is year in the sense of a jubilee year. A year in the sense of a time when debts are forgiven, when property is restored to its original owners, when slaves are redeemed and set free. So it's a season, it's an age of redemption, it's an age of grace. It's the age in which we live right now. We are living in the comma there in Isaiah 61. But this age has an end. The end of this age comes with the rapture of the church. The age of grace comes to an end. The church age ceases And a new season of God's dealing with humanity begins. And specifically, God returns his attention to Israel, the 70th week of Daniel. We've talked a lot about that. At the end of those seven years, then, we have the return of Christ. You know what? I have a visual aid, and I'm not using it. Could we throw that slide up, Miss Christie? There we go. So we've got the church age. There we go. 
We've got the church age here. This is us. At some point, we have the rapture of the church. It may not occur exactly at the beginning of the tribulation, on or before the beginning. And then we have the seven years of tribulation. The great tribulation is the second half. At the end of that, we have the return of Christ. And we generally talk about the return of Christ as marking the day of vengeance. Perspectives differ on that. But that's when the opportunity to repent ends. When Jesus returns in judgment, judgment begins. The judgment of the nations that we read about in Matthew 25, the, the sheep and goats judgments, it's, it's sometimes called. Point being, the acceptable year of the Lord is Jesus begins with Jesus' first coming. The day of vengeance generally thought to begin with his second coming. He comes once to save, once to judge. So far, so good? Pretty solid territory. This isn't the part where I think I lost people last week. Where I think I lost some people, you know, not you, but, but some people. <clears throat> Isaiah 34, verse 2, The indignation of the Lord is against the nations, His fury against their armies, utterly destroyed them, given them the slaughter, the slain thrown out, the stench rises, the mountains melt. So far, so good, because that's just Revelation 19 territory. Where, where I think we got tangled up is verse 4. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as a fruit falling from a fig tree. And I think we got tangled because I said, what is this talking about? When does this happen? How does this fit on our timeline? And I said, I, I'm not sure. And rather than just say, I'm not sure and keep going, I said, I'm not sure and said, but it could be this and it could be this and it could also be this. Bing, bing, bang. Zip, zam, zoom. Because I like options. That's just how I'm wired. That's who I am as a person. Having different options, different possibilities to consider makes me feel better. But not everyone's like me. Options soothe me. They stress other people out. Like the good-looking woman in the media booth who likes closure. She comes to a fork in the road and she takes it. Point is, is, is right when I should have slowed down, I sped up, forgetting that I'm not teaching to a room full of, you know, me. So let's, let's rewind. Let's try this again. Verses 2 and 3 make sense because Revelation 19, white horse and sword and judgment. Verse 4, the heavens are rolled up like a scroll. Okay, this is reason to pause because it's not immediately obvious where in our timeline that happens. I don't know for sure where verse 4 lands. And that's okay. It really is. In fact, it's better than okay. It should be like that sometimes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the opening of John's Gospel. What does that tell us? It means that God's love, His character, His plans, His promises are captured and contained and conveyed to us verbally through Scripture. 
This, this is a written glimpse of who God is. It's, it's his character. It's his personality. It's his love. It's his hope for us written down. It's divine. It's supernatural. And as such, it should be beyond us, at least some of the time. Even in dwelt by God the Holy Spirit, we still, Paul says, see as through a glass dimly. We still, our glasses are, are still smudged. If we could fully apprehend everything that Scripture has, if we could fully comprehend all of it all of the time, I think that we would end up asking, how divine is this? How big is the God who gave us this, and should we really be worshiping him? I was talking with my daughter last week. We went to see her the end of last week. And she's about halfway through four years of undergraduate. And so people are asking her, so what's next? What are you going to do after school? Her, 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 I don't really want to talk about this response is, I'm, I'm thinking about grad school, praying about grad school. Oh, well, what, what, what are you going to study? Don't know. But, but we, we, were, we were kicking it around. And, and you know, what, what, what could you do? What option? You just just talking about options. And, and, and somehow the conversation turns to, well, if you went, to, went to, to grad school to study Bible, to study theology, and I don't think that she's going to, but if she did, she said, you know, if I were to, if I were to keep studying the Bible academically, I would definitely study Old Testament rather than New Testament, and I would probably study Isaiah. She, got, she said, I could, I could see a world where I could make Isaiah my life's work. Why, why Old Testament? New Testament's kind of been combed over, dug through. Are, 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 there, are there new things to unearth? Of course there are, but mostly it's, it's, it's well-traveled ground. There are things that people disagree about, but they know what they're disagreeing about. The Old Testament, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. There's, there's, on a pretty regular basis, we come to a place like this and we say, I don't know what's going on here. And, and man, I could see making Isaiah my life's work if I were academically inclined, which I'm not, if I had studied any Hebrew ever, which I haven't. But, but just studying through Isaiah the way that we have, we're going slow, relatively speaking. I mean, even among Calvaries, you know, a, a tribe that's known for a high view of Scripture and line upon line, verse upon verse, precept upon precept teaching, it's a lot more common if you, if you look at how Calvary pastors tackle Isaiah to go in two, three, four chapter chunks. Now, we're going much slower, obviously. And, and I'm, I hope, I, ho I think God's meeting us there. I think we're doing what God wants us to do. But even at a week even a, a chapter a week pace, I know every week there's a pile of stuff I set aside and say we don't have time to get into that. I know there are things that I could be talking about that I'm not talking about. And so that begs the question, how big is the pile of stuff that I don't even know I'm not talking about? 
I know, I know what I don't know enough or enough to tackle or, or have enough time to prioritize. How big is the I don't know that I don't know pile? But back to verse 4. This, this isn't so much we don't know that we don't know. This is we know that we don't know. I, I don't know for sure. I know, I know for sure that I don't know for sure where verse 4 fits. It's part of the day of vengeance. And I have some possibilities. The reason, the reason that I say I don't know, signs in the heavens, is not something that we normally associate with the second coming, the return of Jesus Christ. If this is ground zero of the day of vengeance, there aren't other passages in Scripture that clearly associate these kinds of signs in the heavens with the return of Jesus. There are signs in heaven before his return. Revelation 12 is one of a, several places that we see things going on in the sky and the stars during the tribulation. So that's one possibility. Could the day of vengeance actually, our definition, be expanded to include some of what's going on in the tribulation, especially the great tribulation, the second half of it. Could Jesus' vengeance, judgment, justice, could we say that it's actually beginning here? Yeah, there's, there's a good basis for saying that. That wouldn't be a foolish thing to, to suggest. Daniel 9.24, talking about the 70th week of Daniel, talking about the tribulation, Gabriel says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy, to make reconciliation for iniquity. That sounds a lot like justice and judgment. So there's a scenario that says, hey, those skies, those signs in the heavens, that could be part of what we see in the tribulation and the day of vengeance could actually begin here and continue. That's a scenario. It could also be that the day of vengeance starts where we think it does with the return of Christ and then wraps up here at the end of the thousand year reign. This is not to scale, obviously. This is seven years. This is a thousand years. <laughs> but we know at, at, at the end of the millennium, Satan is unchained. He's unleashed. He draws people away from Jesus, which is mind-boggling, considering that Jesus is physically ruling and reigning on earth, but yet people decide to follow Satan. So there's, could this be the day of vengeance? Part two. Part one where he, he, he returns to judge at the end of the tribulation, part two. Because there are signs in the heavens associated with this, the final judgment and the transition to the new heavens and the new earth. We read about it places like 2 Peter 3.10. The day of the Lord will come, it'll start as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. So there... Peter, in, before he even gets to a comma, talks about the beginning of the day of the Lord and the end of the day of the Lord, where the heavens pass away with a great noise, the elements met with a, melt with a fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So, so that's another scenario, that those signs in the heavens could be referencing part of this final judgment. 
And, and so there could be a part one and part two of the day of vengeance of our Lord. Here's a third possibility. And this actually didn't occur to me last week, and it should have, but it popped, it, 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 I couldn't miss it last weekend when I was teaching about God's wrath. And if you were here, you remember that we found ourselves in Revelation 6. And in Revelation chapter 6, when the sixth seal of judgment is open, we read, verse 12, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, earthquake, sun became black as sackcloth of hair, the moon became like blood, the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. That's interesting, because that language is very, very similar to what we just read in Isaiah 34. What do we do with that? Depends what we do with the seal judgments. And I'm going to get a little technical, but... It's us, so you're going to hang with me. Next slide, Miss Christie. The traditional perspective on how the seal judgments, the bold judgments, I'm sorry, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bold judgments um, play out is, is sequentially. That the seal judgments happen, and then out of the seventh seal come the trumpet judgments, and out of the last trumpet judgment, well, this last trumpet judgment contains the bull judgments, and they play out more or less sequentially. So a very traditional way of, of putting these in chronology, next slide, is to say, yeah, the seven seals, those judgments happen first half-ish of the tribulation, and then on the other side of the abomination of desolation, we've got the trumpet judgments, the vile judgments, things start to get hairy. So if, if, if we go by this chronology, then that sixth seal judgment would happen sometime probably in the front half, in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. That's never been a comfortable thought for me, even though that's the way I taught it 10 years ago, because of phrases like the sky receding as a scroll and every mountain and island moved out of its place. That doesn't sound like anything else we read describing the middle of the tribulation. So here's another perspective on how the seal, bowl, and trumpet judgments, I keep getting them out of order, seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments play out. Next slide. It's possible, and some people believe and teach, that the seal judgments are overview, that they take place over the entire seven years of tribulation. The trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments happen towards the end, but the seal judgments are describing that entire seven-year period. That starts to make Revelation 6 a more comfortable thought with the geological changes, with the astronomical phenomenon, 
with the wrath being poured out, with people crying out, the wrath of the Lamb is coming, hide us, hide us. Doesn't mean that's for sure. I said at the beginning, and I'm going to say again, falls into the category of things I'm not sure about. Because there are very bright, very conservative people that agree with us right down the line about eschatology. Smart people who are pre-millennial, Jesus returns and then there's a millennium, a thousand-year kingdom, who are pre-tribulational, the church is removed and then God turns his attention back to Israel. People who believe that and still have different perspectives on how exactly the tribulation and the events of the tribulation and the judgments in the tribulation all roll out. I think I'm changing my mind. I think I'm heading in this direction. But I haven't decided for sure. I haven't studied enough. And that's okay. It's okay to look at verse 4 and say, there's a few different options, not altogether sure. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to seek it out. Proverbs 25, 2. When we come across something that we don't understand, that's an opportunity to dig in. It's an opportunity to study, to compare Scripture with Scripture, to see what people have said, to see what Scripture says, to see what the Holy Spirit says. And the result is always good. Hey, we know the word that much better for having dug in. We know the author of the word that much better for having spent time with him. But where does that leave us? Go back to that first slide, if you would, Miss Christie. Verse 4 could happen here, here, here. Don't know. Not sure. And I'm okay with that. It's going to happen in one of those places. It won't happen later than here because that's when this earth, this, this, these heavens are rolled up, are done away with, and replaced with a new heavens and a new earth. So it's, gonna, it's going to happen. And it won't happen later than the final judgment. And, and, and for now, for our purposes right now, I'm all right with that. The details of the choreography, the logistics, don't change God's purpose for this time. His purpose and his plan is judgment. That's the big picture. That's what we need to understand. That's what we need to not be confused about. And, 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 and regardless of where verse 4 lands, it doesn't change the question that we need to ask, we need to ask ourselves, we need to ask others, how are you doing with Jesus? And how are you going to be when the wrath of the Lamb is poured out? If we're in Christ Jesus, the wrath of the Lamb has already been poured out on the Lamb. And we'll escape the day of wrath. But for people who don't know where they are, who haven't decided where they are, that's the takeaway. The day of wrath is coming. And whatever the order of events, the outcome is going to be the same. Judgment on the unbeliever. Hope that helps. If you're now more confused than you were when you walked in, you might have walked in and said, I wasn't confused at all last week, but now I am. 
grab me, I'll try again, or, or I'll point you to someone else who can try it different. But confused or not, we should spend a little time in chapter 35 tonight. Chapter 35 carries with a promise that on the other side of the day of vengeance, the millennial kingdom is waiting. Now, I said Isaiah 35. What I really want you to do is go to Revelation 19. I promise we're going to get to, Revel, uh, to Isaiah. But Revelation 19, just, just super, super quickly, verse 11. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. That's Jesus returning. The next thing that happens, the next big event Go to chapter 20. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into a bottomless pit, shut him up, set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. So that's the second big thing that happened. Satan's bound. Verse 4 I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the work of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So we have the, the, millennia, the tribulation saints added to the church, adding to the believing remnant that, that survived the tribulation, and together they enter the millennial kingdom the thousand years that John keeps talking about here in Revelation 20. Who doesn't enter the millennial kingdom? Those who at the end of the tribulation are in rebellion against Christ, those who have not given their heart to Christ. That's the, that's the judgment of the nations, the sheep and goat judgments. That's, that's verse 4. The, uh, they lived in, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not live until the thousand years were finished. That's the unjust dead. Um, go down to verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part of the first revel, uh, resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So verse 4, first order of business is the judgment of the nations. Then the second order of business is the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ with you and I ruling and reigning with him. Just wanted to put that in context. That's the thousand years we're talking about. Now back to Isaiah 35. What's it going to be like? This thousand years. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Who's them? Turn back to verse 17 of chapter 34. He has cast the lot for them. His hand is divided it among them with a measuring line. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation. They shall dwell in it. So from context, it's clear them is Israel, the believing remnant of Israel, finally, finally possessing the fullness of their inheritance. God said to, Ab to, to Abram, here's the land that I'm giving you, you and your descendants. Israel has never fully occupied it. But in the millennial kingdom, chapter 35, verse 1, uh, they will. Well, 34 verse 17, crossing over into chapter 35. Who else is going to possess it? Tribulation saints we just read. Who else? You and I, because we're grafted in at that point. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. 
the land of Israel is going to be rejoicing for the people Israel. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Where Jesus goes, healing happens, right? When Jesus returns to rule, creation will be largely healed from the curse. Not completely, but substantially. It, it shall blossom abundantly the land shall, and rejoice. The land is going to rejoice? Is that poetical language? Probably, but, you know, if rocks can cry out, and Jesus said that they can, can the land rejoice with singing? Maybe. At the very least, vegetation, plants, fruit, are, are, going, to, are going to bloom, are going to grow where they couldn't before. They're going to spread where they couldn't spread before. They're going to bear fruit like they've never borne fruit before. They aren't going to have to contend with predators. No deer are going to nibble at the buds so that they don't grow. They're not going to have to contend with weeds because thorns and thistles are part of the curse. How does that happen? We already know, but Isaiah tells us, verse 3, Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hard to be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. That's what we've been reading about. But here's part two. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. So there's a reciprocal function to all of this vengeance and judgment we've been reading about. God is going to judge the nations. He's going to judge the unbelieving world in rebellion. But he's also going to bless and restore Israel that's been enduring persecution. What's worth noting is that's all framed to Isaiah's contemporaries. That's all framed to those even in our day who are reading it before it happens as encouragement. Look, be, be, be encouraged. Buck up, Isaiah is saying, to those of us who aren't there yet, who haven't seen it yet. This is a promise and it's going to happen. Jesus is coming. Judgment will happen. Restoration is certain. Just hang on. Harry Ironsides, in, in his commentary on these verses, laterals to Proverbs 13, 12, he says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Well, Scripture says it. He quotes it. The medicine for depression, for, for anxiety, for sadness, for despondency is to remind yourself, verse 3 and 4, why we have hope. We have hope because Jesus is coming. Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to come to seek and save the lost. Guess what he did? He said, I'm going to come again to avenge and restore, and he will. And when he does, verse 5, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness. Think about the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his first coming. We focus a lot on the prophecies of his birth and the prophecies of his death, and there are many, and they were fulfilled literally and perfectly. But there were also prophecies about his ministry. And what we just read is that Jesus, when he comes, gives sight to the blind. The deaf hear, the lame walk. Those are signature 
miracles of Messiah. And when we were studying Life of Christ together, we pointed out as we came across them in, in Matthew 15 and uh, Matthew 11 and other places, hey, that, that's authenticating Jesus. And, and, he, and he says as much. Do you, do you not only see that I'm doing miracles, but do you see the specific miracles that I'm doing, the types of miracles, that they're a fulfillment of prophecy? Scripture says Messiah would do this and I'm doing this. Hello? The point is, is that the fact that Jesus fulfilled prophecy in his first coming should encourage us to expect the fulfillment of prophecy in the second coming, to expect it, to wait for it, to be comforted and encouraged in anticipation of it. People are going to be revived. People are going to be renewed. People are going to be healed. And again, not just people, but the land. Verse 6, the water shall birth, uh, burst forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And this isn't generic prophecy. This is actually specific. The words wilderness and desert, if you know Hebrew, which we've already established, I don't. But if you dig into it linguistically, it points to specific places. Wilderness points to the Negev Desert, which is in southern Israel. Christy, I think we've got one more slide. There we go. So the Negev Desert is uh, basically Israel south of Jerusalem. And then the word desert in verse 1 and again in, in verse 7 is Arabah, and that's the desert region here wedged in between the Dead Sea and the Red Sea. Today, those regions are both very, very dry. There's little, if anything, growing there. And the problem is not bad soil. If you go to the nearby Sahara Desert, the problem is it's sand, and, and hardly anything can grow. The, the soil is not, is not suitable to support plant life. In the two regions named here, the soil isn't the problem. The soil is fertile. The problem is purely lack of water. Verse 6 and 7, we just read that problem is going to be corrected Another thing that isn't clear in the English, where it says parched ground in verse 7, that refers to mirages. You know, you're out in the desert, you're out, you know, on a horse with no name, and you see what looks like water, but it's not really water. And, and what Isaiah is prophesying is that the, the mirages are going to actually be real pools of water when Jesus returns. And in the middle of all of this transformation, verse 8, a highway shall be there and a road. This isn't a metaphor. This is a real road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others, others, others who aren't unclean. People, people born in the tribulation, remember, have a sin nature. Everyone, millennium kingdom, let me start again. Everyone entering the millennial kingdom has a glorified body. Those, that's not even true. Those returning with Jesus have glorified bodies. Those entering the millennial kingdom are all believers, but there will be unbelievers born during the millennium who will have to decide what they think about Jesus, will have to choose him the same way that we had to choose him. 
So there will, when it refers to unclean, who are all the unclean? I thought all of the unclean perished in the sheep and goats' judgments. They did, but people will still be born. So that's what unclean references. It shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. That's just Isaiah saying you won't be able to miss it. It's like going to the airport. The only way you get lost in an airport is thinking too hard. The signs are there for, for people who have never traveled before who don't speak English. Um, you won't be able to miss it. No lion shall be there. there. There won't be any threat, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there. Then the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So this is, this is prophetic, clearly. There are, there are those who think that God is done with Israel who try to wrestle these verses to refer to the return of Israel from the Babylonian captivity. It doesn't fit. Because when we read Ezra, when we read Nehemiah, there are threats and attacks, right? There's combat, there's persecution, there's opposition. There are Gentiles and Samaritans, people who are clearly not God's people, dwelling in the land. And there's a ton of sadness, and there's a ton of dismay, and it doesn't get better when they get back to the land, because when they get back to the land, there's the ruins of the temple and the walls, and even after they rebuild the temple, there's still disappointment, because it's not like the temple we used to have. No, we read verses 8, 9, and 10. This has to be future. This has to refer to Israel's future, to the world's future, to our future. Yeah, there's a metaphor there if you want one. If you want to grab this and, and, and pull an application out of it, sure, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah, Jesus is the highway to holiness, sure. That's a perfectly valid application. No one comes to the Father but through him. Even a fool, even the, the least educated person can understand the gospel. There's no one that, that can miss the truth of Jesus. And when we walk that highway, when we choose Jesus, yeah, no one or nothing can separate us from him. No one can snatch, snatch us out of our Father's hand. And what's the fruit of our salvation? Singing and rejoicing. So there's a good application there. It's just not the right interpretation. The interpretation is yet future. But if you want another application to wrap up with tonight... Understand that there's a real promise about a real Christ and a real throne and a real kingdom and a real future with him. I think the most important takeaway tonight was back in verse 3. Remember that. And let that future, that truth, that reality, that prophecy encourage us. Verse 3, you know... Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong, do not fear. Because the fact that Jesus came, when he said he was going to come, where he said he was going to come, how he said he was going to come, gives us confidence, beyond confidence, gives us certainty. He's going to come again. When and where and how and with the effect that he's promised. That's encouraging. That's worth remembering. 
And it's worth remembering as we close tonight, we have something even better than Isaiah could promise. We have someone better than Isaiah could promise. When Isaiah's writing and prophesying, he's writing and prophesying to a primarily Jewish culture. He's writing and prophesying to Israel because the church was still a mystery. The church had not yet been revealed. A mystery is in the Old Testament concealed and in the New Testament revealed. We weren't revealed yet. So it's to Israel that Isaiah says, hey, look at the faithfulness of God. Look at, look at what we read in the Word. To us, Isaiah can say, hey, look at the faithfulness in your lives. Look at the revealed prophecy that hadn't happened yet when Isaiah spoke these things. But even beyond that, look at the faithfulness that lives in your heart. Israel had prophecy. We have the spirit of prophecy dwelling in us. Israel could look backward and forward at God's plans playing out. We can look inward and upward at God. The veil's been torn. Our sin has been forgiven. Our access has been purchased. His word has come alive. We've been given eyes to see it. And we're alive. We're alive in Christ. Join heirs with Christ, the bride of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, closer than brothers to Christ, family, friends, lovers. What's my point? We have a way to be strengthened Verse 3, we have a way for our faith to be firmed up that far, far exceeds Isaiah's wildest dreams. We can talk to Jesus. And my suggestion, just something to take away, put, put, in, a, put it in a carry-home bag and, and ponder it when you have some time. My suggestion is that we think of our quiet time, our devotional time, in just that way. We can talk to Jesus. When, 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 when we think of our devotional time as well, that's my Bible reading. I mean, okay, I mean, yes and good. Praise God. But if, 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 we, if we think of that the wrong way, that starts to sound like homework. And when somebody says, hey, Patrick, you should do your homework, I'm not always in the mood. Hey, Patrick, Sunday's coming. Do you have a message yet? I'll get to it. When? When I'm in the mood. <laughs> I'm not always in the mood to study God's word. I, I never regret it when I do. But sometimes thinking of it that way can be a barrier. What if we think about our quiet time as time with a friend? Talking to someone who loves us, who knows us, who's proved how much he cares about us. And what if some of that time is, hey, remind me of, remind me of things that are true. Tell me again that you're real. Tell me again that all of this gets better. Tell me again that it's going to be worth it. And promise me you're not going to leave me in the meantime. Because when we do that, 
end of the chapter, when we return, when we come to Zion singing, we'll obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Want to be encouraged this week? Want your faith to be built up? Talk to your friend Jesus. Lord, thank you that we can. Thank you that you made a way. Thank you for the price that you paid. We sang about it at the beginning of service. We sing about it almost every service. The facts are never far from us, but the reality, the enormity, sometimes, sometimes we let that sit at arm's length. Draw us close, Jesus. Remind us of the cross. Not for the sake of lording it over us, because you never do. But for the sake of inspiring a response from us. For the sake of encouraging us. For the sake of demonstrating to us. That's how much you love us. The lengths that you will go to spend time with us, to be able to. That's how much you wanted to, how much you still want to. Meet us, Lord Jesus. Strengthen our weak knees and the arms that hang down.